Hello and welcome to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. In this episode, my guest and I consider the national security of one of the world's largest and most isolated countries, Australia. At the heart of Australia's security policy lies a crucial question. Should Australia, a country situated thousands of miles away from the Asian landmass, defend itself by casting out on the Pacific Ocean and pushing militarily towards Asia? As is often said, attack is the best form of defence. This is certainly the view taken by the signatories of AUKUS, a 2021 security partnership between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, under the terms of which Australia will contribute heavily to the United States fleet of nuclear submarines, with the strong implication that these submarines will be used to counter growing Chinese military influence in the Indo-Pacific. The terms of AUKUS would see Australia build a nuclear submarine fleet larger than the United Kingdom's and place Australia squarely in opposition to China, amidst growing tensions between the People's Republic and the United States. My guest today sees this offensive strategy as unrealistic and mistaken. Instead, he suggests that Australia should take advantage of its geographic isolation and focus on defending its own shores wait for the day China casts itself out and build sufficient military capacity to deter their aggression. He is, therefore, one of Australia's AUKUS sceptics, the namesake for today's episode. That guest is Sam Rogovin, director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Programme and author of a new book called The Echidna Strategy, Australia's Search for Power and Peace. The Echidna Strategy is the name Sam gives to his preferred conception of Australian security. It's a strategy which places him at odds with both the Australian Labour and Liberal parties, but his arguments are thought-provoking and timely. They also provide ample food for thought for policymakers in the UK, a country without the financial means to behave as a global power, but which retains the delusion it can. Sam and I discuss the origins of the US-Australia military relationship, the possibility of American decline in Asia, the future of Australia's relationship with Indonesia, which Sam regards as Australia's most important future bilateral relationship, the implications for Australia and other countries of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, and Australia's view of itself in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce Australia's AUKUS Skeptics. Hi, Sam. How are you? Hi, Tom. Pleasure to talk to you today. Yes, yeah, pleasure too. Sam, this episode is something of a first for the hated and the dead. I've covered groups of people rather than individuals before, but our subject today is a group which, at least in name, you and I have constructed. Um, they are Australia's AUKUS sceptics. I suggested the rather more cavalier title of Aussies against AUKUS, but you you reined that in. Um, AUKUS is a relatively new military alliance between Australia, the United States, and the United Kingdom. Um, You are the author of a new book. That book is The Echidna Strategy, uh, Australia's Search for Power and Peace. Um, And you, you sort of out yourself in the book as an AUKUS Skeptic, you're you're also Australian, so I suppose you're kind of the the John the Baptist of this movement. Um, <laughs> very briefly, 
just to set the conversation up, why did you decide to write this book? It was an, it's really an attempt to uh, broaden our national security debate. It's, it's certainly not an attempt to change policy because, as I'm sure we'll discuss in more detail later, the bipartisanship on questions around the US alliance is so rock solid that there really is no national debate on major questions such as Australia's uh, defence posture and our, uh, you know, the, the, the core elements of our foreign policy. So what I was really attempting to do was to widen what policy wonks call the Overton window, uh, which is the, the phrase, I, 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 by the way, I have no idea who Overton was, but um, it's a phrase that's often used to describe uh, the boundaries of acceptable uh, debate. And I was attempting really to widen that slightly. And the tactic I use is really to say that um, it's not at all radical to conceive of a future for Australia, which is not as tightly tied to the US alliance as it is today. Um, and I think what's, to the extent that the book has succeeded, um, the reason is that I don't come at this as a radical at all. I, I think of myself as a, as a liberal conservative, as someone who comes from the, the centre-right of politics, even though I'm in party terms, I'm unaligned. Uh, but usually critiques of the American alliance here in Australia come from the left and calls for a more independent or self-reliant uh, Australian posture tend to come from the left. So I have tried to open up the debate by making what I regard as a, uh, you know, a conservative case for uh, a more independent Australian foreign policy. Uh, and as I said, not, not, not to change policy directly. I don't think there's any immediate prospect of that. But I do think there's a possibility of opening the Overton window a little bit so that people who are traditionally very tied to uh, very conventional views about Australia's place in the world and its relationship to the US uh, can start to ask themselves whether uh, there's the possibility of, uh, of an alternative posture and, and, and actually that that alternative might be imposed upon us over time. Okay, that's, that's set things up really well. Thank you. So AUKUS as an alliance is two years old. It was signed, the agreement underpinning this alliance was signed in September 2021. Um, but the story of why AUKUS has come into being is, is, is much older than that. We have to go further back in history to understand it. And, and the fundamental reason that AUKUS has been signed is the rise and increasing uh, perceived bullishness of China though its signatories were much more coy about that when they signed it than I have just been, I think. Um, so there are two sides to this. Really. You have Australia's relationship with China and you have Australia's relationship with the United States, which you touched on there. If we take the relationship with the US first, in broad terms, what was the strategic relationship between the US and Australia like during the Cold War and the first couple of decades after the rise of China had begun? Mm. Well, firstly, if, if you'll forgive me, um, it's worth saying that in, in formal terms, at least, AUKUS is not an alliance. Uh, so there, there, there is no treaty level arrangement here. Uh, now, I stress the phrase informal terms uh, because AUKUS supporters are very quick to point out that this is really an intel uh, uh, a technology sharing agreement and uh, a huge arms deal. And of course, it is those things. Uh, but I would argue that in substance, it seems to me 
impossible for three countries, but two in particular, the United States and Australia, to enter into an agreement of this intimacy and, and of this length uh, without it having a major political subtext. Uh, and of course, the political subtext, although, as you point out, the, the China element of it has not been explicitly raised, it seems to me it's hard to miss the political subtext when, uh, for instance, in March of this year, it was the three leaders uh, of, of the, mem- the, the members of AUKUS, um, Albanese, Rishi Sunak and Joe Biden, who stood on the stage together in San Diego to announce the details of, uh, of the AUKUS partnership. Uh, you don't do that for any ordinary arms deal. So this is, uh, there, is, there is a clear political subtext here. And it does, on, to, to come to your question, it does represent, represent really an unprecedented tightening of the uh, alliance between the United States and Australia. It was always very close. Um, the ANZUS agreement was, was signed in the early 1950s, but it was, never, it was never a NATO-like arrangement. It only ever committed uh, Australia, the United States and New Zealand at the time to consult each other if there was a, uh, if there was a threat against any of the three. Uh, it, it wasn't a one for all, all for one, you know, Article Five type treaty that NATO is, which is sort of the, the gold standard of security treaties. And thus, it remained, I think, for for most of the Cold War. Uh, the, from an Australian point of view, the most important contribution that we made to that alliance was the stationing of uh, of American uh, communications and listening stations in Central Australia, uh, that allowed for you know. Su- su- surveillance, uh, but also um, essential communications posts for America's own uh, nuclear early warning uh, network. Uh, So it allowed the United States to get warning of a potential Soviet nuclear strike on the continental US. And through that time, Australia also committed in in its own modest way to American military operations, Korea, Vietnam. Uh, and in the post-Cold War era, uh, particularly after 9-11, uh, the alliance took on a new turn because after the 9-11 tax, as it, ha- tax, uh, as it happened, the Australian Prime Minister of the time, John Howard, was in Washington on 9-11 and he invoked the ANZUS Treaty for the first time after, uh, for the first time in its history after those 9-11 attacks. Uh, Australia became an incredibly close, an even closer military partner with the United States so whereas previously the Australian military had been centred uh, in its relations with the US around the Pacific Command, uh, it now became much more closely associated with, associated with Central Command. We sent troops to Afghanistan. We sent troops to Iraq. We were one of only, I think, four countries, the, the, the US, the UK, Australia and Poland that sent troops into the initial combat phase, uh, the initial invasion of Iraq, although Australia in very modest numbers. And thereafter, we remained, uh, we were were in Afghanistan for almost the entire 20-year period. Uh, The Iraqi adventure, we were slightly less enthusiastic about, particularly under Labor governments. Uh, We withdrew there and then came back for the ISIS phase. But uh, I would say, actually, that that the beginning of the the beginning of the process of of ever tightening uh, US-Australia military relations that we're still living through actually began after 9-11 and has reached really, I think, unprecedented new highs in the last two years with 
uh, AUKUS in particular, uh, but then much more recently, we've had uh, Australia announcing that the United States would in future station combat forces in at RAAF Tyndall, an airbase in northern Australia. So the US will fly bomber missions from northern Australia in the event of a war. Uh, and also we had the announcement of something called Submarine Rotational Force West, which will see four US and potentially one UK nuclear-powered submarine uh, rotating out of uh, a naval base in Western Australia. And again, they would perform combat missions from that facility. So for the first time since World War II, we would have US and potentially UK forces going to war from Australian facilities. Uh, and as I've pointed out recently in, in, uh, in an article that I wrote, uh, that makes Australia a military target. So that is a, you know, a real step change for Australia. As another Australian defence commentator has said, we are witnessing, in effect, the NATOization of the US-Australia alliance now. If we move to China, China's rise, people would usually locate as having happened in and around the time since the Soviet Union fell. Whether the rise is still happening is, is a matter for debate. In the heyday of the rise, which most people would say is the sort of 2000s, early 2010s, what was the relationship between Australia and China like amidst this tightening of Australia-US military and strategic relations? Well, like many countries around the region, around our region, China became our major trading partner in that period. Um, so we went through a change that was really unprecedented in our history ever since Australian uh, nationhood at the beginning of the 20th century. We'd been in the lucky position that our major strategic partner was also our major economic partner. So in the first half of the 20th century, of course, it was the United Kingdom. Uh, and then in the middle of the Second World War, we switched our military allegiance to the US and it also became our major trading partner. In the 70s, Japan was our major trading partner, also, of course, uh, an ally of the United States. Uh, but since the, uh, well, I forget the date, but I think it's the, the early 2000s, our major trading partner has become China, which, of course, has strategic interests that are directly at odds with those of the United States. So we're not unique in that regard. A lot of nations around the region uh, underwent that kind of change. But um, uh, it's worth adding that you know Australia, up until uh, COVID, Australia was the only OECD economy to not go in re into recession in the in the twenty years before that. I think it, I think it was actually up to twenty three years. So mm. twenty three years of uninterrupted economic growth, and a lot of that had to do with the relationship with China and unprecedented demand for Australian uh, exports, in particular our uh, iron ore, uh, but but plenty else besides. And then, of course, around for the last five or six years, really, we've seen the uh, the decline of the bilateral diplomatic relationship between Australia and China uh, and really coming together over the last three years in a Chinese economic coercion campaign, which has seen tariffs and other trade measures put against Australian exports. Now, that's the, the, that relationship's starting to thaw now. And in fact, just a, a few days before uh, we're recording this, we saw, in fact, it was just yesterday, it was announced by the Australian government that, a, that an Australian journalist who'd been detained for 
uh, almost, I think almost a year in China had just been released. And that lays the groundwork now for the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, to go ahead with a, uh, uh, with a visit to Beijing probably in November. Uh, and we've also seen those trade measures that I referred to slowly being taken off Australian exporters. So ever since the change of government uh, to the Labor Party, uh, we've seen a, you know, a slight softening of, uh, uh, of Chinese anger towards us and, and improve, steady improvement in the relationship without Australia having to make too many concessions. In fact, no substantive concessions at all. So America and China are now the two world's largest economies. They have been since 2011. And you've alluded to this, there was considerable dependence between the two of them in the 2000s. This, this is what Neil Ferguson referred to as the Chimerica period. Um, but the relationship between the US and China has worsened greatly, probably starting in about 2015. 2016 obviously saw the election of Donald Trump, which many people saw as a, as a watershed. And one of the features of this souring has been the military buildup of China which is gathering pace. How has China's military build-up manifested itself in the broad Indo-Pacific? Well, first of all, we should, we should say how dramatic this has been. So I think it's, it's generally agreed among uh, military experts that we haven't seen a modernisation and an expansion of military capabilities anywhere in the world of this scale since the Second World War. So it's it's truly dramatic. Uh, and I think it's been most felt in China's near abroad. So the military balance between China and Taiwan has shifted decisively uh, to the extent that, you know, China is now overwhelmingly the stronger power. Still doubt about whether China could uh, successfully complete an invasion of Taiwan. I think significant questions around that. Uh, but nevertheless, China is now uh, overwhelmingly the largest military power, uh, and it is it has by far the largest navy in the Asia Pacific. Uh, and in purely in purely in terms of the number of hulls in the navy, it's now larger than the U.S. Navy. Not as capable just yet, nowhere near as capable, but is is already larger. And I think it's on track to become uh, not just larger, but as capable as the U.S. in it, in the region. So the one caveat I'd offer here, uh, actually, it's, before I make the caveat, it's also worth mentioning that China now, having expanded its conventional military forces over the last 30 years, really, is somewhat belatedly, but now unmistakably embarking on not just a modernization, but a rapid expansion of its nuclear forces. Um, so there's evidence now of China vastly increasing the number of ground-based or silo-based um, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. It's also building a much bigger uh, submarine-based nuclear deterrent, and it is in the next few years going to induct a uh, a new strategic bomber into its fleet, uh, a stealth bomber. All of which, again, are designed to uh, to deliver nuclear weapons if they have to. All of that said, I think you know beyond Taiwan and beyond China's near abroad, the effects have not been felt overwhelmingly, um, and that's because China doesn't have many allies. It doesn't have many foreign military bases. In fact, it has only one in Djibouti, and it still lacks maritime capability that can really uh, deliver 
sustained military power projection over very long distances. It's getting much better at that, uh, but it still has an awfully long way to go. And the distances involved, particularly in the in the Asia Pacific region, are, are vast. Uh, so, uh, you know, w- with all of that said about China's vastly expanded military capabilities, in order to develop the kind of power projection capabilities that the United States has, uh, will still take decades, really, to match that. So we're now at a point where the US sees China as the primary threat to the global world order. I know you have some very significant doubts as to whether China is actually a military threat to the United States. But nevertheless, the US has conducted quite a lot of policy reviews, policy changes really from the time of the Obama administration onwards, what what has largely been called um, the pivot to Asia. In very simple terms, what are the ways in which the threat from China, and, and that that's there's a lot of rope within the word threat. Um, what are the ways in which the threat affects the United States and Australia differently? And what are the ways in which they affect the two countries similarly? Um, I think on the question of, of it affecting the United States and Australia differently, the obvious difference is geographic. So we we have no choice about being in the Asia-Pacific region and then being a Southeast Asian and Pacific power, uh, the United States does. And you've alluded to an argument that that I have made in my book and in many other forums about American resolve to maintain its leadership in Asia. And the sheer scale of China's rise as a military power, I think, forces the US to ask some really deep searching questions about its leadership in Asia. The simple version of those questions being simply, why are we here? So when you face an adversary of China's size and when you are considering the prospect of a you know, multi-generational whole-of-government contest against China that actually you know, leaves the Cold War in, against the Soviet Union in the dust in terms of scale, you need a really good reason to stage a contest like that and potentially to go to war with a country like that. And so the question I've been asking is, does the United States have a really good reason? Uh, and I actually don't think that it does. America, despite China's scale and size, remains an incredibly secure and safe country. Uh, it's not it's not a direct military threat from China because it's separated by a vast ocean and it has a huge military and thousands of nuclear weapons. I don't think it's really an uh, economic threat from China either because, uh, again, despite China's size, it's very difficult to lock the United States out of Asia uh, even if China could achieve something like that, which I think is questionable, any more than the United States can lock China out of markets in, in Canada, for instance, or in Mexico, or even in the United States itself. That would be self-defeating. So the motivation, I think, will be lacking for the United States to stage this contest. And what's different for Australia is that we simply have no choice in the matter. If we think China is out to develop a sphere of influence that stretches all the way through Southeast Asia and into the Pacific, then we have simply have no choice but to resist that. Uh, now, there are, there are clever ways to do that and self-defeating ways. I think we're pursuing the most self-defeating course right now, and we can get into that later. Mm. Uh, but uh, that is, I think, the main difference between Australia and the United States. The similarities I find harder to come up with, actually. <laughs> so I think it's probably a good, a good point in the conversation to restate 
what AUKUS actually is and what it requires mm. of Australia. So can you just go over that again? We, we touched on it briefly at the beginning. What is AUKUS and what does it require specifically of Australia as we're speaking in October yeah. 2023? Well, AUKUS has Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. So Pillar 1 is the, the bulk of AUKUS and it is a, an agreement between the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia to supply eight nuclear-powered attack submarines to the Royal Australian Navy. Uh, these will be nuclear-powered but conventionally armed, so they will, not be, they will not carry nuclear weapons. And the proposal is for Australia to get, firstly, three and potentially up to five American Virginia-class nuclear attack submarines, and thereafter to get three or five uh, of a new class of submarine to be called SSN AUKUS. Now, the United Kingdom was already embarking on a project to build a new uh, nuclear-powered attack submarine, which had been provisionally called uh, SSNK, and that's now becoming SSN AUKUS. So Australia and the United Kingdom together, with a lot of American help, but the US, uh, excuse me, Australia and the UK together will design an entirely new class of SSN, and that will be inducted into both navies. It will become uh, the class uh, of, of submarine that replaces Britain's existing fleet of uh, nuclear powered attack submarines, and it will also uh, grow to become uh, the second model, uh, the second class of submarines in Australia's nuclear powered submarine fleet. So that's pillar one, that's the bulk of it. Pillar two is a technology sharing agreement that covers. And I'm going to forget all the categories, but everything from drones to uh, AI to cyber weapons and a few others besides. And it's much smaller at the moment, purely in terms of the money that's been committed to it. And I would characterize AUKUS Pillar 2 right now as basically a, uh, a military free trade agreement negotiation. So that it's, it's a bureaucratic exercise right now to bring down the national barriers that exist between these three countries to share technology and to share people, human resources, who can develop these technologies so that they can pull all their resources and do it all together. If we move on to what people think of this deal, uh, I think there was a, a, a good sort of objective, simple description of what, of what the deal does. If, in terms of the analysis that people have of it, um, you were telling me when we were emailing before this discussion that Paul Keating and Malcolm Turnbull, both former prime ministers, they're both names that, that people will be familiar with who are listening. Both former prime ministers, one from Labour, the other from the National Party, the centre-left and centre-right. Liberal, liberal, excuse me. Mm. I've been uh, reading too much about, about New Zealand. Um, they're both against AUKUS, mm. and we'll get to why later but the current labor administration is favorable to the deal as, as you mentioned um albanese the australian prime minister met biden and sunak in san diego earlier this year to to kind of formalize this and and to and to kind of put some meat on the bones as it were of the deal what is the albanese government's justification of this deal well actually the justification is incredibly thin so the the both this government and the centre-right Morrison government, which initiated uh, AUKUS in 2021, have justified 
this as being about deterrence, about military deterrence. Now, needless to say, there are there are countless ways to deter uh, military threats against Australia. So it requires a little bit more explanation than that. Uh, why did we choose this particular way of deterring a military adversary rather than one of the countless other ways that we could possibly do it? That's never been explained. And in fact, it's extraordinary that you know we're well over two years into this now and no no prime minister and no senior cabinet minister, either in this government or the previous government, has offered a major statement explaining what the what AUKUS is actually for, and in particular what the submarines are for. Uh, it's notable, in fact, that at the San Diego gathering that you were referring to, Prime Minister Albanese uh, spoke about AUKUS purely in terms of the jobs that it could create in Australia. You know, it's it's a it's an odd justification. We're we're a sub four percent unemployment economy, uh, and as I said, other than the interruption from uh, from COVID, we've we've barely gone into recession in this country in a generation. Uh, so it's not like Australia is crying out for a government led stimulus program to create jobs and to create economic growth in this country. We're doing just fine without it. Uh, so there has been very little strategic justification for this agreement. Behind the scenes and slightly uh, sotto voce, um, senior ministers and senior figures in this government and the previous government have alluded to the the real justification of AUKUS. Uh, So, for instance, at the time the agreement was announced, the the then Australian ambassador to Washington, who was a very powerful uh, Liberal Party figure, said that um, Australia really needed to project power closer to China. Now, and um, similarly, Australian journalists who covered the initial Australian entreaties to Washington to initiate this deal uh, have reported that what was what it was really about was uh, an Australian capability to project power thousands of kilometres to our north, and even to fire cruise missiles onto the Chinese landmass. Uh, now, that is one way to ensure deterrence against the Chinese military threat. I've argued it's not a very sensible one, uh, but that, as far as it goes, is the uh, is the explanation that's been offered. Okay, so here's your right of reply to Morrison and Albanese and others then. Why do you re- why are you against AUKUS? Why do you reject that that analysis, which, which as you've already said, was relatively thin. This was almost yeah. presented as a fait accompli. Well, I think I can summarise it in in two points. The first point is political and the second is military strategic, let's put it that way. Uh, the political point is that we risk our own sovereign decision-making capability or reduce our room for sovereign decision-making because we are developing capabilities which we will find very difficult to withhold in a moment of crisis. So when you build a naval fleet centred around eight submarines that are expressly designed, I would argue, for a war against China, then at the moment that the balloon goes up, uh, when the Americans say to you, listen, boys, we really need this stuff now, you make it very difficult for yourself to say no to the Americans. You cannot spend a generation or more developing a technological and strategic doctrinal relationship with a foreign power of the most intimate kind and then at the crucial moment 
say to them, no, sorry, we're out. Of course, you can do that theoretically. And I've heard, you know, uh, Labor Party figures say, no, no, we can always say no to the Americans, but you just make it that much harder to do so. Whereas if you don't have the capability, then the question never arises. The Americans can't ask us to do something which we're physically incapable of doing. So that's the political question. We're tying ourselves much more closely to the United States, to, to the alliance, which could lead us into a war. Or uh, the alternative is actually that we're tying ourselves to the United States, which I would argue uh, could very well be a declining power in our region. Either way, I don't think it puts us in a very good uh, situation. The strategic point is simply that it seems to me that Australia's single biggest defence asset is distance. Uh, when it comes to China in particular, you know, we're, we're a long way away. Uh, but Beijing's closer to Berlin than it is to Sydney. And in the Australian de- defence debate, that distance from China is often overlooked. Uh, for instance, we've had books written by former soldiers saying that the danger is on our doorstep. Well, that's a big doorstep, if that's the case. So our single biggest defence asset is distance, and it seems to me that Australian defence strategy should be all about exploiting that distance, and what AUKUS does and what these submarines will do is, in effect, it's an attempt to, uh, to reduce that distance, to compress the distance between us and China rather than exploiting it. Because the whole point of having submarines with with this kind of range and this kind of endurance is to operate near China's coast and, if necessary, even to fire missiles onto the mainland. So my argument is simply that if, in the unlikely event, China ever wants to uh, pose a military threat to Australia, let them come to us. I don't think there's any need for us to operate that far north. There's a lot of different elements to that. Uh, So if I can just take a few different things. I mean, you, you described the idea of America becoming a declining power in the Pacific, first of all. This, in a a sense, sort of, you know, flies in the face of quite a lot of conventional wisdom that America, as I said earlier, pivoted away from other parts of the globe, away from the Middle East, away from Europe, away from, to some extent, its own backyard in Latin America. The conventional wisdom is that the, the US has done those things to concentrate more of its military power towards the Indo-Pacific, and specifically against China or to, or to contain China. Um, and there's quite a lot of evidence they've done those things. They've got a much closer relationship with South Korea than they did 10, 15 years ago. You have things like the Quad, which Australia is also in, uh, the close relationship now between uh, Australia, India and Japan and the United States. You've even got relatively small things. I mean, I, I was reading the other day that the US has opened embassies for the first time in in Seychelles in about 40 years. Uh, America and Britain are currently engaged in quite a a heavy diplomatic spat over the status of of Diego Garcia, which is an island where America has a military base. And and the the US are extremely worried that Britain is going to to negotiate that military base away. Obviously, again, it, it probably never could actually do that. But the point is, all of these things suggest engagement with Asia. They don't suggest disengagement or decline. What would you point to as evidence that American power is declining in Asia or or will decline? I think there's actually more evidence that you could that you could list on top of yours. Uh, the, the the most notable one I would argue is the Chips Act by the Biden administration, which which clearly is a is an attempt to strangle 
or at least delay Chinese uh, technological development in order to slow down its progress in part as a, as a military rival to the US. Uh, and there have also been other uh, you know, direct uh, military moves that the United States has made, particularly around basing, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But really, my argument rests on, if you like, not evidence, but the lack of evidence. And what I mean by that is that in the 30-odd years since the end of the Cold War, uh, the United States military force structure in the Asia-Pacific really hasn't changed very much. Uh, So there's still roughly the same number of troops and ships and fighter squadrons in Japan as there was in 1990. Same is true of Korea. There's been a slight expansion of its submarine capability in Guam, and there have also been the building of, or at least the, the striking of new um, basing arrangements with uh, the Philippines, notably in the last uh, year or so, and with Australia, which is where uh, we began talking about Darwin and, and Western Australia. But I would argue that's more about you know moving the pieces on the board rather than adding more pieces. Actual force structure growth is very difficult to find other than perhaps a handful of submarines. Now, it's worth thinking about what's happened in Asia over that 30-odd year period that we're talking about. So it seems to me really the strategic environment in Asia has been utterly transformed in that period. So first of all, you had the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, Then you had the nuclearisation of North Korea. And of course, most notably, you had the rise of China as a military and strategic power. So a complete transformation in the period of 30 years. Now, you would think with that in mind that the US would have utterly transformed its military posture in Asia as well as a response. In fact, the situation, you could argue, is so serious that a truly dramatic gesture would have been called for, such as saying to the Europeans, listen, you guys can take care of Russia. After all, European economies are about 10 times larger collectively than is Russia's economy. You guys take care of that. We're moving our forces to Asia. None of that has happened, and it's not even a distant prospect of it happening. And I'd say with with the events of the last week or so in the Middle East, it's uh, it's even less likely to happen. I mean, the US is is even contemplating a a NATO-like security arrangement with Saudi Arabia. So you talked about America, you know, disengaging slightly from uh, the Middle East, and that's that's been true to a degree. But you know, I'm I'm, I'm reminded of that great line from uh, The Godfather Part Three, where Corleone is is about to retire, and he says, "Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in." And so that that seems to be America's fate in the Middle East. So I mean, my my argument really rests on that lack of evidence. There, there has been no clear commitment, clear uh, military commitment of American resources to the region, despite the fact that the strategic environment has been utterly transformed over the last 30-odd years. And so essentially in your book, I think you say that the result of this eventually, and this won't be something that happens sort of year by year, something that will take decades, the American-Australian alliance won't officially end as such, but you'll, you'll never, you're never going to be adversaries with each other, but, but that it will essentially become a kind of symbolic alliance. Do you think that's – is that, is that a, a fair characterization of what you think? Almost. I think symbolic is too strong. So I, I, I would – I think it will maintain – and it may not take decades. It may happen much more quickly than that. Um, 
The point really is that the alliance will never be stripped of its practical elements. Uh, so there'll always be arms sales. There'll always be you know, training exercises in Australia. There will always be the Five Eyes, uh, intelligence sharing arrangement and so on. My argument is that what really what dissipates and what gets eroded over time is the sense of assurance that we get as Australia, but also all America's allies in Asia, the sense of assurance that they get that the United States will come to their aid if they are at military threat. And really, that, that sense of assurance doesn't simply come from, uh, from knowing that the American troops are there or that the Americans are selling you arms or sharing intelligence. That sense of assurance comes from a feeling that you have that the United States would be prepared to make major sacrifices on your behalf. And that feeling, I think, is, is already eroding. And the best example, I think, is on the Korean Peninsula, where because North Korea now has an intercontinental ballistic missile that can effectively flatten uh, one or even a number of American cities, uh, South Korea, in turn, is now being asked, is now forced to ask itself a really important question: Would the United States be prepared to sacrifice one of its own cities to save us? And it seems to me the answer is clearly no. There, there is no strategic imperative that is so desperate, that is so uh, existential for the US on the Korean Peninsula, that it should be fairly asked to make that kind of sacrifice. That, that's that's too much to ask of the United States. And so, therefore, I think the South Koreans, having asked themselves this question and having come to the obvious conclusion, are building their own deterrent. It's not not yet a nuclear deterrent, although that I think is much closer than uh, than we might believe. There is incredible public support for uh, South Korea to go nuclear, uh, but South Korea is already building the delivery systems that they would need: ballistic missiles, uh, submarines that they can fire them from, etc. So the, the, the architecture, the infrastructure is already being built for South Korea to become a nuclear power. And the only reason they would do that is because they simply no longer believe that the Americans would be, able, would be willing to make major sacrifices on their behalf. And I think over time, Japan will feel the same way, and so will Australia. We will simply stop believing that the Americans are prepared to make those kind of sacrifices. And justifiably so, because the United States is inherently so secure. So your alternative to AUKUS, it's maybe not a direct alternative to AUKUS exactly, but it's just a, it's a, it's a change of, of sort of foreign policy direction that you advocate is, is the Echidna strategy. It's the title of your book too. Um, I'm, I'm aware that for some listeners perhaps in, in Britain, and what an echidna is, first of all, might be a, a good place to start because I, I, I'm slightly embarrassed to admit I actually had to look up what an echidna was. Well, um, so the, the, the title I chose for the book is really a play on the idea of the porcupine strategy, which has been adopted or at least to a degree adopted by Taiwan. And an echidna is really an Australian native mammal that looks very much like a porcupine, a very small, unthreatening creature which is is not, is a predator or, or a threat to no to none except uh, ants and termites, but which for any other predators, for larger um, uh, for birds or mammals that might want to attack it, uh, could be extremely uh, dangerous and painful to mess with. And that is essentially the metaphor that I'm reaching for. The, the other part of the metaphor is is simply that. Uh, 
echidnas defend themselves at close range. So this goes back to the point about distance being Australia's greatest defence asset. Echidnas can't go out in search of enemies. Uh, They basically wait for the enemy to come to them. And I think that's a sensible posture for Australia as well. So in concrete terms, what is underpinning the echidna strategy? What should you be doing that you aren't doing now? Well, what I'm calling for actually is a uh, a strategy centred around a concept that military strategists are used to, typically associate with China, and it's called A2AD, uh, anti-access area denial. And this is a strategy that China adopted, I would argue, in its first phase of military modernisation from the 1990s onwards. Since then, it's developed a more uh, uh, expeditionary capabilities as well, but really in the first phase of its modernization, it pursued an A2AD strategy, which is essentially designed not to get, not to win command of the ocean, but to deny any other country command of the ocean. And the way you do that is actually to to develop numerous types of platforms, submarines, surface ships, uh, and aircraft, also land-based missiles, all designed to make it impossible for an enemy to operate uh, on the oceans in your near abroad. Now, near abroad initially meant a few hundred kilometres, but China now has the capability to uh, to find and to sink uh, surface ships such as aircraft carriers, for instance, at distances of up to 1,500 uh, or even 2,000 kilometres. With uh, that, that China has developed a, a new class of weapon called an anti-ship ballistic missile, uh, which have also been dubbed carrier killers designed specifically to hunt and kill uh, American uh, aircraft carriers. And that, it seems to me, is a sensible strategy for Australia because the only way to really direct significant amounts of military force against Australia is either to send it by sea or to uh, acquire military bases in Australia's near abroad. So if they want to send it by sea or by air, we should have the ability to knock enough of it out at uh, you know relatively short distances, uh, and if they want to develop military bases, then I think a different strategy is called for for Australia by Australia, and it's really not a military strategy at all. It's more a statecraft strategy. So Australia needs to develop a a new kind of relationship with countries, the countries closest to us, particularly the Pacific Islands, but also Indonesia, uh, in order to ensure that they never can host those kind of military facilities. That's particularly uh, risky in the Pacific Islands region, and we've had credible reports over the last few years that China does have an interest in acquiring military bases in the Pacific Islands. We've resisted that effort so far, but that's something we need to be incredibly vigilant about. So one of your main concerns about AUKUS is that you see it as putting Australia in harm's way. You're going out and looking for a fight with China. The echidna strategy, as you said earlier, is the idea that let China come to us. Why are we going out into the world and looking for danger when ultimately danger is going to be visited on you eventually in one way or another, or at least or at least the potential for danger? Do you not think that possibly both strategies could be deployed at the same time? A sort of more offensive or potentially offensive strategy against China and also improving your own defensive capabilities are are these two things that you're that, that we're talking about are, are they actually do they work in contravention to another to each other or could they be deployed simultaneously 
I think they probably could be deployed simultaneously. It simply seems to me that that's unnecessary. Um, It's also a question of opportunity cost. If you're you're spending more on defence, which you would have to do in that circumstance, then what are you not doing? Uh, What are you not spending money on? Uh, But I think primarily my argument would be that the more uh, offensively oriented Australian posture, one that's you know, built around a lot of long-range capabilities designed to be operated alongside the United States, uh, that that actually provokes the very thing that we're trying to prevent. So as I said at the beginning, uh, the fact that we now have US combat forces are going to be operating from Australian soil makes us a target of China. I mean, previously we, we've had also, as I mentioned earlier, these these listening posts and these communications facilities which we've always thought as, of as being nuclear targets for the Soviet Union in the past, and probably in future they'll be targets for China as well in the event of a, uh, as part of their nuclear war planning. Uh, but other than that, we've never hosted uh, American military fo- uh, forces on our soil. And so, you know, we're, we're putting ourselves up higher on the, Amer- uh, on the Chinese target list than we used to be. And what you want, to, that, that's not necessarily a terrible idea, but you want what you want is some kind of return on that. Does that strengthen Australian deterrence and does that serve our foreign policy objectives? Uh, I, I argue that it really doesn't because, in effect, what we're asked, what, what's being argued here is that Australia can't be secure unless the United States remains the dominant power in Asia. And that, it seems to me, is unachievable, first of all, but also, even if the United States believes it is achievable, it ends up provoking the very war that I think we're trying to uh, we're trying to prevent. So, as you, you the the big country that you mention a lot in the book and that is going to be crucial for Australia, as you see, is Indonesia. Mm. Indonesia is obviously reasonably close to to Australia, and, it, and in a sense, it, it you could see it almost, I suppose, as, as being like a shield between Australia and and the Asian mainland. And you've kind of got two different things. You've you've got the the kind of mi- the the military element of what you're talking about, trying to make Australia more capable of defending its own territory, and you've then got this regional cooperation element. Do you worry, or have you considered the idea that the first of those things, the military stuff, gets off the ground? That happens. Australia becomes more capable of defending itself by itself, as it were. But the other stuff, the regional cooperation, never really does get off the ground. And what what I potentially see your strategy turning into is a series of nations kind of unilaterally trying to defend themselves without much cooperation with each other. And what you end up with is a, is a series of individual countries that in many ways are actually more vulnerable to Chinese influence. Because they're yeah, not think- really talking to each other. Do you, do you ever think that there's a kind of halfway house that Australia gets to with this that's actually quite unhappy? Well, in fact, I, I think the, the scenario that you paint about nations having to do much of this work individually rather than in concert, I think that, that is exactly the future that we face. Um, and that is because the region is so vast as to make uh, close military cooperation between various countries less likely. So if we compare this to Europe in the mm. you know, the post-Second World War period, that was a relatively contained uh, geographic 
contest between great powers where, you know, it made absolute sense for NATO countries to argue that an attack on one is an attack on all. And therefore, it made absolute sense for them to come together and defend themselves collectively. That simply isn't true in this region. The region is so vast that, for instance, uh, you know, if, if China and India were to go to war tomorrow, and not just the border skirmish of a couple of years ago, but a proper border war, uh, then it is very difficult to imagine that Japan would believe that its national interests are so closely engaged in that contest that it needs to go and help India to resist Chinese military aggression. The same is true of Australia. I doubt we would believe that our interests are so deeply engaged that we would help India in that circumstance. And vice versa. India wouldn't do that for us. Japan wouldn't do that for us. So the geography, I think, militates against any collective security uh, arrangement on the, on the, uh, in the style of NATO and therefore means that countries need to do it individually. However, the one exception or, or one exception that I would draw to in the, uh, that I would draw uh, in that regard is Australia and Indonesia because they are geographically very close and they share the same strategic geography and the same strategic ambition, which is to say that I think both of them are deeply invested in a future in which China cannot dominate maritime Southeast Asia. I don't think it's possible for Australia and Indonesia to stop China becoming the leading military power in our region, in our region but we can stop them being the dominant power. And that, I think, it seems to me, is an important, a very solid basis for a much closer strategic partnership between Australia and Indonesia. Uh, and as something akin to an alliance is what I argue in the book. You would never call it that because the Indonesians are a bit allergic to that idea, but it's something very similar to that idea. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the, these alliances, I, well, look, we, we're, this is still very far off. And in fact, the critics of the book have said to me that this is perhaps the most unrealistic aspect of it. They understand, uh, as I do, the inhibitors on this kind of uh, project, particularly inside Indonesia. I think Australia would be ready for it, uh, but the Indonesians would find this very difficult. So I'm not so much drawing on a lot of evidence to claim that this can happen. It's more that I think Indonesia's interests will be engaged to such an extent and will become much more clearly at, uh, at odds with those of China, with China's ambitions, that something like this becomes much more attractive to Indonesia in the future. Where do you see what's been happening in Taiwan coming into all this? Taiwan is obviously probably the most, it, it, it's the thing that is giving the international audience the most concern in Asia at the moment. Where do you see Taiwan playing into this idea of the Echidna strategy? You mentioned Taiwan in relation to the, the porcupine strategy earlier. Um, mm. What does, let's say, for example, China does decide to invade Taiwan at some point in the near future. How would that change the calculation in terms of AUKUS and in terms of and in terms of what you call the Echidna strategy? Well, I think at the at the point the point at which Australia has the military capabilities that it is supposed to get under AUKUS, then it, once it, when a Taiwan contingency happens, there's a likelihood that Australia would be would commit itself wholly to the defence of Taiwan alongside the United States. If the United States chose to go to war to defend Taiwan, Australia would go along. Now, some would argue that we would do that anyway. We would do that right now. If the, if the balloon went up tomorrow, we would do that. But the kind of capabilities that we can offer 
uh, once the AUKUS submarines are in place is much greater than what anything we can offer now. Now, I, I argue in the book that when you look at the, the projections that the United States Navy has made for the middle of this century, we would be Australia if it, once it's at its full complement of eight nuclear-powered submarines, would be adding about uh, I can't remember the figure now, but I think it's something like twelve to fourteen percent to America's nuclear submarine fleet. So that's a significant addition. In fact, we'd have a larger submarine fleet than the United Kingdom would, which is to me an extraordinary uh, comment in itself. We're not a great power traditionally conceived. We don't have nuclear power. We don't have a seat on the UN Security Council. It, it seems an, an extraordinary uh, piece of uh, hubris on Australia's part to want to join that high table uh, when otherwise it seems we have no place on it. I mean, I want Australia to be an ambitious nation, but not so much when it comes to military power. Um, so, I, But look, at the heart of all of this, uh, the question of Taiwan is for Australia, the, the question has to be, well, is Taiwan's security a vital national interest for Australia? And in the last, excuse me, in the last few years in our national debate, I think Taiwan's security has come to be conflated almost seamlessly with our own. That strikes me as being flat out wrong. I mean, we are thousands of kilometres away. We, we certainly don't want Taiwan to be invaded by China, but Australia's vital interests are not engaged, particularly when you consider the consequences of a war between the United States and China over Taiwan, be the largest war since World War II, probably and could risk the extinction of the human species, right, if it goes nuclear. So are Australia's interests sufficiently engaged in Taiwan that we ought to be a participant in such a conflict? I would argue emphatically no. One way to think about this, and it's somewhat crude, there are, there are many differences, I'll say that up front, but, you know, one way to think about this is to think about uh, Hong Kong, which used to be a free and, and democratic city and no longer is. Um, can Australia live in that world? Um, I'd say yes, absolutely. Australia can live in a world in which Hong Kong is not free. We prefer that it was free, but we can easily live in a world in which it's not. Taiwan, as I say, is different. There are economic interests engaged as well, and some people argue that it makes it easy for China to to break out onto uh, onto the the open oceans of the Pacific, and therefore threatens American naval power much more. Those are deep arguments in themselves, but I'm not convinced that Australia's vital interests are engaged. There's a few different things. I mean, you make it clear in your book, Sam, that you're not, you don't think of yourself as, as an isolationist. You, you see a threat from China quite clearly. I suppose in a way there is, what we've discussed so far is, is two different strategies, right? There's a, there's a, an offensive strategy which kind of takes the fight to China, which you're quite clearly against. There's a more defensive strategy. I suppose, in a way, there's probably a third strategy, which is not a strategy at all, really, which is just to kind of disregard the threat from China and to kind of stick your heads in the sand. How likely do you think it is that Australia sort of doesn't confront this threat at all? Well, you could argue that for all of the uh, huffing and puffing about AUKUS and other policy changes that Australia has made, uh, that at our core, we haven't really committed ourselves to uh, confronting the risk of a, uh, of a Chinese military threat to Australia because 
we're not really proposing to increase our defence spending very much. We, we may in, in years ahead, but certainly for the coming five years, we're, we're pretty much standing pat. Now, the, the, the big spending for AUKUS comes after that, right? The big bills start to come due uh, five and ten years in. But also there's the, there's the simple timing element. It's, it, AUKUS is going to take so long to get going. For us to get any military capability is going to take uh, more than a decade that there is this kind of odd mix of panic and complacency. Uh, yes, we absolutely need to do need to do this unprecedented new thing in order to secure uh, Australia. However, it can wait a decade or two. <laughs> you know, that, that is a that is a strange tension at the heart of AUKUS. So, look, I, I I think actually over the medium to long term, all of the strategic arguments that I've been making, including in this in this discussion today may turn out to be redundant. And what happens is that AUKUS goes into slow decline simply because of the cost and of the complexity of the project. So all of the, um, all of the usual kind of pressures that, we, that every country, including yours, is familiar with regarding large military projects, they start to affect AUKUS because it is so incredibly ambitious for Australia. Uh, and we effectively, you know, decided that from a standing start, we were going to have something equivalent to a uh, to a moonshot. We were going to send astronauts to the moon, you know, and we, we have no experience. We, we, we've never done anything remotely like this before. So it's massively ambitious as well as being massively expensive. And over time, we will start to see reports of cost overruns and of program delays. And unfortunately, I think the most, the biggest prospect of that is on the UK side of it. Because UK shipbuilding, uh, shipbuilding uh, and submarine building is constrained, so I see lots of uh, risk of that over the long term. Uh, and then, you know, the political capital will erode. Already two of the three leaders that brought AUKUS about have left the stage, Scott Morrison and uh, Boris Johnson. So at some point it may just be kicked into the long grass. I mean, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the domestic UK discussion about hs2 the second highest speed rail link which we've just cancelled yes. i mean we, we know all about about cost overruns so i think you're probably on the money um what do you think i, I want to sort of turn to the effect that AUKUS has had and what it means for kind of domestic australian politics for the last 10 minutes what do you think the reliance on the alliance with the us tells you about australia's kind of national psyche because clearly that's where AUKUS has come from it's a it's a in a way it's like a comfort blanket it's 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 tying yourselves to the US which is your traditional um military strategic partner does it display a lack of self-confidence do you think and, and you've sort of alluded to that well I'm reluctant to draw that conclusion um I have some sympathy with the argument that was made by the the eminent Australian foreign policy commentator Alan Gingell, who referred to this as the fear of abandonment. Uh, yes, Australia has always tied itself to a great power and uh, de- you know, defending ourselves, uh, securing ourselves has always been much easier that way. I'm a little reluctant to call that a lack of self-confidence um, simply because Australia has been so successful in, uh, in so many other ways. And uh, <laughs> probably some of your listeners in the UK would uh, would sit back and say that their experience of Australians and Australian culture and Australian life that that a lack of confidence isn't something that they normally <laughs> <would> associate. 
<laughs> with us. So, um, uh, and I think we have an awful lot to be proud of and confident about, you know, the kind of, uh, I mean, it's, Australia is a kind of a miracle country in a way, out of, out of nothing. Uh, we, we built one of the most successful multi multicultural societies on earth. Uh, so we have an awful lot to be proud of. It, it's it's simply that Australia's uh, grasp of independence has been a bit halting and uh, a bit reluctant, and it's been imposed upon us rather than us grabbing it uh, for ourselves. And I think it's about to be imposed upon us again, uh, either because the US overestimates its its capabilities and uh, takes on this contest against China, or, as I think is more likely, the United States effectively says, no, this isn't worth it, we're pulling back. And therefore, either way, I think Australia will be forced into a position where it has to do more for itself. And the good news in my book is to say that actually Australia is more than capable of doing that. You have two main political parties in Australia, Labour and the Liberal Party. The establishments, I think, of both political parties have been broadly, and I, I'm trying to nuance this, broadly in favour of all, because obviously Scott Morrison was a Liberal Prime Minister and he signed up to AUKUS originally. Albanese has inherited that and, he, and he's endorsed it quite, quite wholeheartedly. Let's say in 10, 15 years' time, if AUKUS has been, I think as you said earlier, kicked into the long grass or sort of just declined, in some way, and something more like the Echidna strategy has taken shape. Which of the two political parties would be more likely to kickstart that? Uh, I would say the Labour Party. And in fact, the Labour Party that's in government now released a effectively a defence white paper early this year, which I found actually you know, quite a good document because it, it did endorse the kind of anti-access area denial strategy that, that I referred to earlier, uh, endorsed many elements of that. Uh, the problem for the Labor government at the moment is that it inherited AUKUS and it politically it can't afford to abandon it. And I think actually AUKUS is, is really intentioned in, uh, with uh, an A2AD strategy, a, a strategy that seeks to defend the Australian continent rather than defend Australia you know, thousands of kilometres to our north. Uh, so I think, yes, the, the, the Labor Party is the more likely of the two. But I'd add that there is a broader trend here as well that is true of all Western democracies, which is that, uh, that of a secular decline of the major parties. Uh, and in Australia, the way that manifests is that we have a much larger crossbench uh, so whereas the two parties used to dominate the lower house of the House of Representatives, where governments are formed, uh, we now have a situation in which we have a much larger element in the lower house that doesn't belong to either major party. And it seems to me that's only going to grow over time uh, because the, both major parties, as I said, are in decline in terms of their membership and in terms of their vote share. And that in turn means we're facing a future of governments which are which will probably all be minority governments that stay in power through coalition arrangements with these cross benches with these uh, independents and minor parties and that they may even be coalition governments in which those cross benches and minor parties have cabinet seats have cabinet positions and those i think are circumstances in which we are more likely to see a uh, a change in our 
in our attitude to the US alliance because the two major the two major parties really embody the attachment to the US alliance it's it's in their dna both of them in fact claim it as their progeny labor and they both have sort of historical claims to that you know the the labor party during the second world war and then the liberal party just after the second world war which created uh, the ANZUS alliance so it's it's as those two major parties decline, I think with that will go that historical attachment to the alliance, and then we get perhaps a little bit more room to move. We often in the UK, there's quite a famous, now famous book by John Sopel, he's a British uh, news news analyst, and he, and he he wrote a book a few years ago after travelling around the states called "If Only They If Only We Didn't Speak the Same Language." And it's all about how actually fundamentally British and American culture are very different. But we constantly conflate the two of them because of our, our shared language. How much of the sort of closeness with America is based on language, the closeness between Australia and, and America? And do you think that actually fundamentally that what it, I mean, language is both superficial and extremely important, obviously, but that how much is that connection going to stunt a development of of a sort of regional independent foreign policy i mean i think it's extremely important but it's part of a package that includes uh pop culture which you know here as in the uk american pop culture is you know hegemonic but also i would say political culture um in Australia, Australia again i think like the uk the australian political class takes a lot of cues from the u.s and a lot of the, uh, the, the, particularly on the right, a lot of the culture war tropes that we see in American politics get rather thoughtlessly imported into our politics. And Australian politicians take a lot of cues from, uh, from the American political class. So uh, when you add to that these historical ties that I referred to that both major parties have, uh, yeah, uh, American culture and Ameri- uh, and uh, combined with the English language uh, is a very difficult thing to shift. Just finally then, we've barely talked about the UK uh, and obviously it's the third partner mm. in this deal in AUKUS. Um, you've thought very heavily about what AUKUS means for Australia. You're Australian, you live in Australia, it's it's, it's understandable why you've done that. Um, have you given much thought as to what it means for us? I mean, obviously, we mentioned earlier about about cost, and the costs are quite considerable, especially for a country, Britain, whose finances are in a much, much worse state than Australia's. Have you got any advice for us? Well, all the costs fall on Australia. Let's keep that in mind. Um, so this is primarily a, a project to supply Australia with submarines, which we will be paying for, which the Australian taxpayer will be paying for. And it was notable, actually, in uh, the, the launch statements made by um, the three leaders at the time in, on 15 September 2021, uh, both the US President and the Australian Prime Minister at the time made statements that had some strategic subtext, whereas Boris Johnson made a statement that was purely economic in nature. And so I can easily see the motivation from the UK side to uh, to joining an AUKUS, and, and, and really it carries very few risks for the United Kingdom. In fact, it spreads the risk that the UK has around its own uh, submarine replacement project because it means Australia is involved and it, 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 
effectively doubles the number of hulls that will eventually be built. So it's it's really all upside for the UK. The one strategic element that was subsequently added was uh, this idea that through AUKUS, the United Kingdom would deploy more frequently uh, to the Asia-Pacific region, and in particular, uh, deploy submarines to Western Australia. And that's the part that I think the United Kingdom ought to rethink. Uh, it seems to me that the United Kingdom and Europe generally uh, can never muster any significant strategic weight in our part of the world. And I don't think uh, the UK's strategic interests are engaged here, uh, whatever you know, China's ambitions turn out to be and however powerful it might be, it's, ne- it's not going to be a military or a strategic threat to the United Kingdom. Uh, and I think that judgment has is, is really been reinforced by, uh, by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which engage UK interests much more directly and I think reinforce a judgment that I've held for some time, which is that Britain is a European power, not a global power. And that's where it ought to be directing its uh, its military assets uh, and its military attention. So, uh, yeah, that, that's the bit I'd be rethinking if I was the UK. Sam, thank you very much. That's been fascinating. And I think we've covered an awful lot of ground, too. Um, if people want to find more of your work, and, and particularly the Echidna Strategy, um, where can you direct them towards you can find your kidney strategy on Amazon, so you can get an ebook, or the the uh, Amazon will send you a print copy, and um, you'll find me at the Lowy Institute. So if you Google uh, the Lowy Institute, you'll find uh, most of my work there, and e- everything we publish at uh, at the Lowy Institute is published for free. And I'd recommend actually our uh, our digital magazine. It's called the Interpreter. I'm I'm one of you know, many uh, contributors to that magazine, but it's it's a really excellent resource. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Tom. Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, follow it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and, for good measure, leave us a review. You can also follow The Hated and the Dead on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, so you never miss new content.